Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachma. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. Shifters Radio. I'm Tim Hayes. I'm your host for the first hour. And today is Friday, October 20th, 2023. As always, we're grateful to everyone who's joining us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives, as we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful, effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered. These tools are available absolutely free through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice on the website at whyagain.org. If you go to that web page and click on the two words that say start here in the upper left-hand corner, it will take you to a page where you can download and read Chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book. His book is titled, Why is this happening to me again? That chapter of the book contains a narrative description and explanation of the primary tool in this work. That tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet, sometimes called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet. And it's a tool I've been using to great effect for 19 years to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships and to turn any negative emotional experience I have into part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given. You can also download the actual worksheet process itself. It's a simple PDF file. Click the link, download it, print it off, copy it as often as you'd like, and use it over and over again, absolutely free. You can also go to your app store and type in the three words, Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness. And if you choose to do that, before you're done typing the word forgiveness, you'll see the glowing heart icon. If you tap on that, it will let you download a completely free and private app that contains the Reality Management Worksheet. It also contains an abbreviated version of that worksheet process. And it contains a copy of the Dragon Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. And we hope people do all of that soon and often, primarily because it tends to improve the quality of people's lives the more they actively apply these tools in their lives. And secondarily, because 
it tends to prompt comments, questions, answers, and testimonials. And if you have any of those to share with us, please do so. Give us a call at 563-999-3581 and press 1 on your phone. Or you can send us an email. You can email me at tjh at mindshifters-academy.org. Or you can email Jeannie at j-e-a-n-i-e at whyagain.org. That's w-h-y-a-g-a-i-n.org. And if you choose to do that, we will address your comment or question on the Internet show. And then as time allows send you a notification about what day and time that occurred so you can listen back to the archives for your feedback. And we appreciate whenever anybody does that because it makes it far easier for us to live into our intention with this work. The intention we have with this work is to be a service. And it's easier to do when we know What's working for you? What's triggering insights? What's triggering upsets? And how we can assist you in knowing how to use these tools to relieve those upsets and make full benefit from those insights. Yesterday, all we did was talk about a few different things. The day before, we finished finished reading the book by Diedrich Wolzak titled Choose Again, the six, step, six Steps to Forgiveness or Healing or whatever it's called. It's not coming up for me right now, but we have plenty of time for conversation. We did not have a support group last night because... Uh, life got in the way, and I opted to be with my family, my son and his, my two sons, and my son's dog, who is near passing, and that came up rather abruptly. Um, so I notified the people that I thought might be in uh, in waiting for the group and let them know we were not having a group session. And I went and spent the evening with my son and his soon-to-be-no-longer pet. And this this gift, this ability to be with people as they go through these transitions that way of mastery would say the transition that we mistakenly call death is a, a real gift and to be able to do it without running away I was just having a session with somebody whose parent is going to be making that transition very soon and this particular person is one of the most heroic and intelligent and sensitive and willing people I've ever had the privilege of working with. And we were just talking about and crying about the idea that 
being there without running away, without running into alcohol use or marijuana use or rage or avoidance of any kind, is both um, the difficult thing and the gift. And, And you don't get the gifts if you don't stay for the process. So that's our encouragement with this. You know, I have all kinds of people that when they hear us talk about the breath or the EFT tapping, they think, well, you're telling me I should not feel these emotions or I shouldn't have this experience. And I keep trying to find different ways to say it's the opposite of what we're saying. When I suggest that somebody use breathing or EFT tapping, it is not so they push away the emotions or minimize them. It's so they allow them, they get the benefit of the information that they contain, the messages. They get the full experience of life that their heart can express. And they keep, they let it flow. They don't try to bottle up their energy system so they don't feel things and they don't stay stuck um, wallowing in an emotion just because somebody thinks they should be grieving or that it's a process of allowing and a willingness to allow that that is the primary message in work like this to feel these things fully without projecting blame and upset to know that even though we have no idea how, there is no way my conscious logical mind can sort through this and know, oh, that's okay, this is going to happen and then that's going to happen and then this will work out just fine. There's no way my conscious logical mind can make sense of how things are going to work out well as I'm going through one wave after another, one tsunami after another of life events that require extra time, extra energy, extra money, extra emotional awareness, extra tears, extra patience. There's no way my conscious logical mind can say, oh yeah, this is how it's going to work out. So the gift that comes from being willing to just gently remind myself that I have no idea how this is going to work out. I just know it is. I have no, there's no conscious logical way to say, oh yeah, this makes sense, or this is fair, or, and yet it's going to be okay. And when I can engage the events of life and stay present and breathe and soften and allow myself to have the tears, allow myself to feel these things fully, there are gifts that you just can't imagine. And they're right there in the middle of all of that intense life event that that brings the heartache and the upset and the negative judgments. But we don't get the gift unless we stay for the whole rodeo. We stay wide open 
and we soften and we allow. So that's what these tools are about primarily. If in, in my estimation, that is what this is why we encourage people to use these tools. The opposite of avoidance. It is immerse and allow. It is breathe and soften and allow. It is the five keys to the kingdom from the way of mastery, lesson five. Desire, intention, allowance, surrender, and humility. And the desire part is to just develop your own innate ability to listen at an energetic level, to listen at a very subtle level to your intuition, to your hunch, to your creativity, to your divine inspiration. And then once you do that, hold the intention throughout the day to stay focused on that, to to let your life energies be informed by what wants to express uniquely through you in the moment. That life energy, that creative energy, that energy of love that wants to express uniquely through you in each new present moment, that's what the way of mastery is referring to when it uses the word desire. It's not about craving. It's not about obsession. It's not about a a, a compassion, a, a compulsion to do something. It is simply about aligning with the energy of creation and letting it inform you about what it wants to do in this moment to express through you, uniquely through you. There's nobody... There's no other uh, chunk of the awareness from the one mind. There's no other body exactly like yours. And so if you hold the intention throughout the day to stay aware of that creative energy and how it's desiring to express through you, now you've got the first two steps of the keys to the kingdom. And the third step is allowance. And the way I think of allowance is it's kind of like the... Uh, it's hard to define allowance. I can, I can tell you what it isn't. It isn't resistance. It isn't tightness and tension. It isn't judgment. It's staying wide open in the flow of life energy and what it wants to resonate through you. And for the most part, because we're not given living examples of that, most of the time what happens is, for me, I just pour more of my mind energy into the part of my mind that can monitor for the earliest warning signs of any upset or tightness or tension. And as soon as I become aware of that, 
then I just breathe and soften and let it go. And that's what I, that's how I define the allowance process. It's not that I'm actively doing something other than watching for the, what Michael Rice would call the automatic decision-making part of my mind that goes into resistance, denial, suppression, tension, upset, judgment. And as soon as I notice that, I take a calming breath I slow down the exhale, so I I activate the parasympathetic response in the physical body, and I allow myself to breathe and soften. And then I'm in that state where, as I maintain vigilance for any tension or upset and release it as soon as possible, that's how I'm staying wide open. Because when I have a tension or I have a judgment or I have a contraction, I'm closing things down. So the next key to the kingdom from the five steps, five keys to the kingdom from the way of mastery lesson five is surrender. And again, this is a this is a word most people in the Western world at least don't want to hear. I'm I want to take charge. I want to be active. I want to be proactive. I want to accomplish things. I want to set goals and achieve them. And way Michael Rice would talk about it years ago would be to say most people don't realize that they're always surrendering anyway what they don't realize is they're always surrendering to hostility or fear or in this work they're surrendering to love and the invitation in this work is to surrender to peace to surrender to love to surrender to compassion patience understanding And let that be the filter that's active in your mind over your intentions and your perceptions. Let that be the coloring agent or the lack of a coloring agent so that you see things more directly and clearly without any distortion. And that's what a lot of people don't want to do when it comes to the flow of life. They don't want to. They don't want to tune into how the flow of life might want to express through them. They don't know how to take their mind energy and focus it in a in a focused, intentioned way, well-intentioned or directly intentioned, consciously intentioned way to stay in alignment with that energy that wants to express uniquely through you in each moment, and stay focused on that throughout the day. And then they don't want to relax and allow the flow of life. They get tight, they get tense, they get in judgment, they get into fear, they get into anger. And and they buy into all the rationalizations that their conscious logical mind will give them or why that's a good thing to do here. And then they don't want to surrender to be taught by life in in this moment. They don't want to surrender to the flow of life and ask as that's expressing 
ask to be shown what's mine to learn here how can i be a blessing to myself and others in this moment ask to be shown by surrendering what are the gifts this moment is bringing me and if i'm not willing to do that i don't see the gifts if i'm busy judging this is bad or wrong this shouldn't be happening my my parent my friend my pet shouldn't be dying this person shouldn't be able to steal my identity and wreak havoc with my finances if i go into that contraction if i get angry and defensive if i get attacking then i miss the gifts that the flow of life has to offer and and they aren't anything that we can predict or script and quite often they aren't anything that we would say we want when they first begin to happen and yet if we stay in that open allowing surrendering space and we stay focused on being in alignment with the flow of life and all of creation that wants to express uniquely through us we can see and then accept allow embrace the gifts and the last step in the five steps what they call the keys to the kingdom and lesson 5 of the way of mastery the last one is humility the last one is the recognition that no matter what my conscious logical mind tells me it's nothing compared to the flow of life itself to what you might call the one mind the one intelligence and to understand that we are all just interconnected sparks of that same intelligence and creativity and flow of life I don't I didn't create myself I don't even know when I was created there's there's very little that I actually do know about my life and when I'm willing to acknowledge that those truths then rather than trying to uh, take credit for how much better my life experience gets i just keep acknowledging that it's life itself that has the credit it's the flow of life and creation it's the creator it's holy spirit it's whatever word you want to give it it's the totality of of consciousness that is responsible for and deserves the credit for everything that happens all of the gifts all of the extraordinary experiences of love and life and joy and connectedness and compassion these are not something i'm creating these are just things that if i'm willing to acknowledge their creation i can 
get access to and enjoy. But I'm not the one driving this bus. I'm surrendering to it. I'm taking responsibility for the one little tiny piece of the creative flow that I've been given dominion over, which is my conscious awareness, which is my the choice of where I focus my mind energy in each moment. And I'm asking over and over and over again how to be shown how I can be of service to the one mind, to the one greater flow of life and love and creation. And again, I'll just say it one more time, when I do that, the gifts that I experience are things I could never have imagined. I can't plan them. I can't direct them. And what I can do, though, is I can ask to be shown. I can ask for help in seeing how everything is always unfolding in a way that's better than anything I could have planned. So recently, in the past year or so, we've I've begun talking about instead of praying that everything's going to work out for the highest and best, I recognize it's far better for me to just pray for the ability to see and comprehend how everything is always working out for the highest and best. Because if I pray for things to work out for the highest and best, what is that? Who's going to judge that? My mind is going to judge that. The people around me are going to judge that. My family and friends are going to say, well, this sucks or that's wonderful. And that's not being in alignment, allowance, surrender, trusting. It's not being wide open in the moment for the flow of life and letting it impact me and letting myself feel fully what my heart can express in that process. And that's the only way I get the gifts. That's the only way that I actually stay in connection with the flow of life. So our call-in number is 563-999-3581. Comments and questions are welcome. Requests for support are welcome. Answers are welcome. We have... plenty of time for comments and questions I've I've been I listened to a a podcast recently from Michael Singer and you can find him wherever you get your podcasts 
It's just titled The Michael Singer Podcast. And the one that I listened to that I found extraordinarily useful because it's just resonating with me. It's I imagined as I thought of sending this to several other people that even if they went and listened to it, it wouldn't have anywhere near the same impact for them as it did for me. But the episode is from October 11th, and it's marked S3E5. So it might be Season 3, Episode 5. And the title of it is Experiencing Love and Joy Instead of Fear and Desire. And if you choose to listen to that, you'll have just another another angle on everything that I just said. This is all about the core of Michael Singer's work is about understanding that life just is and we can, if we choose to, soak it up appreciate it even even the pain that we experience even the heartache we can soak it up and appreciate it just as much as the joy just as much as the bliss states and the the thrill and excitement of the roller coaster ride etc if we understand that it's not you know, life isn't something for us to create and direct. It is something for us to just experience. And um, he, he presents some thoughts in there that are somewhat controversial to people who talk about, you know, you've got to have the pain if you want to have the pleasure and this, that, and the other thing. But it's it's just a a powerful set of messages and I recommend it. So 563-999-3581 call that number and press 1 and we can have a conversation. Area code 541, you're in the air. Hello, how are you Dr. Kim? I'm alright, how are you? I'm good, thank you. I have a question to ask you. And also, I want to say that I thoroughly enjoyed yesterday's show, all two hours of it. I'm really, really grateful, um, as usual, for what I'm learning from all of you and uh, what I'm learning from myself in the process. And so I just wanted to share that with you. Um, So much of what Susan talks about I see in myself and like... Her, in some ways, I'm groping, and in other ways, I've come to peace about certain aspects. And so I'm just very grateful that we're having these dialogues, all of us, Magda, Susan, and whoever gets on the show, Doug, and uh, you, and Jeannie, and Michael. Thank you. You're entirely welcome and deserving. 
Well, it certainly is influencing my life, and I'm taking it to heart as quickly as I can. Um, I was thinking when you just said about we're not driving the bus and how true that is, and I also realized that because we're unique, each one of us is driving our little minibus. And I, um, I see that as that way because my willingness to be at the wheel of my little minibus and have the Christ mind as my compass or GPS, if you like, and have a Rucha as a Rahma as my compass and Rucha or the Holy Spirit as my navigator um, uh, as we're heading homeward, whatever homeward means in this wonderful queendom that I have inherited, um, and kingdom for you, uh, because it doesn't matter. It's about holding the scepter of the power that we have been given to create. And I just thought I'd share that with you because it's it's very helpful to me. And when I do pray for the highest and best, I, I intentionally pray that I do not know the highest and best for anyone, including myself. So... I just say, okay, the highest and best creator, that's, that's what I'm envisioning. Prayer as an envision, as the Navajos tend to see it. Of we envision um, through feeling the experience, feeling state, that which we cannot see at the moment. And I just thought I'd share that with you. And then I have a question, too, but you might have some thoughts about that to bounce back to me. Well, I I just, as I already said, it came to me a while ago, and I've shared it on the show, that um, instead of praying for the highest and best, I'm now praying to be able to see how everything is always working out for the highest and best. Yes, I like that especially. Thank you. Nice little turn. Uh, refrain for me what is your question um the last few about the last week or so i have felt a desire to reach out to my daughter again um and invite her into the adventure of co-creating a new environment a new relationship totally new relationship together for healing and um, support and whatever else it might include, understanding and compassion. And and I do not, uh, let me see, how would I phrase that so that it's true for me? Um, I desire that out of, out of a, a sense of love and compassion for both of us. And I was hoping you could help me discern so that I do not fall into the trap of, oh, my goodness, um, I need this relationship. I need this reconciliation. Do you have any words of uh, comfort for me that would help me um, discern as I sit on this and hatch this and see what Ruha and uh, Rahma desires for me? Well, I suppose I would I would ask, what is it that makes you fearful that it's going to be interpreted as anything less than loving? 
beautiful choice um, because of a beautiful comment because I have in the past reached out to her and I haven't even had a response so I do not want to let me phrase this a better positive way uh, and truthful way I really honor her privacy and her her choices and at the same time I have this um, sense that comes up to, uh, once again and again that perhaps it would be the most loving thing to do to invite her into reconciliation and healing another time or at what point do we just drop it? Can um, can you help me well, with I don't that? Think, I, don't, I don't think you ever need to, as you say, drop it. Mm-hmm. And yet, you 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 may or may not choose to overtly invite again and again. So the kind of right. thing that comes to my mind is, you know, um, Michael has talked about this whole history of shifts that take place in relationships when people come to Heartland and do their work. And these aren't, okay, so this shift takes place because now I go and I call somebody. It's that I do the work, and the next thing I know, somebody calls me. And so the the kind of work that I do is I start removing whatever might be less than love from my energy system that might resonate with thoughts about this other person. So if I have a fear that if I reach out to my daughter, she's going to take offense or reject me again, I do the work on dismantling that fear. If I have the fear that if I engage her and she says one of my trigger phrases that I'm going to be you know, triggered to upset and I'll say and do something to ruin the whole mess, then I do my work around dismantling that fear or whatever I know to be the trigger of defensiveness or whatever it is. I might imagine doing the love exchange with a picture of the person and do that every morning for a week or so just to watch what happens as a shift in me and or in my energy toward this person and or in stirring up old triggers that then I can put on worksheets or do the EFT tapping around to let the energy flow through me more rather than have it be bottled up. Good. So so all of those things we're talking about happen before I would ever overtly reach out to this person with a letter or a phone call or a text or an email or That's just doing the work on my side of the equation energetically. Perfect. Thank you for that reminder. And it reminds me of when I went through the 12-step programs about what the 12-steppers would call the two-stepper. Are you familiar with that? No. Uh, it's really, it's really... <laughs> 
I'm going to smile because I bet Gail is smiling right now. <laughs> um, a two-stepper who comes in and uh, says, oh, yes, I surrender to step one. I am powerless over fill in the blank, um, uh, that step, and, um, and my life has become insane. And the 12th step, which is I carry this message out into my world and <laughs> they don't do the other two the other 10 steps and so thank you for that sweet reminder <laughs> and i am doing my work so i'm i'm just watching because i have that history that i've shared with you that so i can be safe so i can be perfect so i can be loved loved you know all of those second parts to the intention, the goal we have. Um, I, I watch that. I feel like a mother hen watching this chick or something. You know, I, I watch that in myself because I know it's going to bubble up again and again and again. So thank you. You're quite but I welcome. I have more joy. Um, and no but, and I do have more joy lately. Well, that's a, a very good thing, I would say. Um, the Michael Singer work uh, in, is focused on helping us tap into that. And it, it makes me think as soon as I say that of um, how in the Darshans and the Q&A from The Way of Mastery, there's a, a particular lesson about the difference between happiness and joy and the real short version of that would be that the happiness is what the ego goes for and the joy is what happens when we are connected consciously connected to our awareness of our source and our connection to it I can see where the happiness would be directly connected to the goal we have, that we want that other person, thing, or situation to fill for us. Well, it's, it's you know, essentially it's this uh, focus on the external. You know, can I get what I want or can I get rid of what I don't want? And that's how I'm going to be happy. And the... Uh, the, the deep spiritual teachings try to tell us that, you know, that this never works. And you don't have to listen to any deep spiritual teacher. You just have to look at your own life experience. How many times have you said, boy, I really want this and then I'll be happy. And then when you get it, you're happy, but not for very long before there's another thing that you want. And then another, and then another. And then maybe it's not something you want, but something you want to get rid of. And then you can't be happy until these people leave you alone or until that person's you know, not posting on Facebook or until etc. And it's an endless loop when we're focused on things outside of ourselves. Well, the root of the word happy is the same root of the word happenstance or happening. 
so it makes sense. All righty. Well, I, I will join you in pursuing joy rather than happiness. Thank and just you. experience that, that flow of energy that some people call happiness when it's there and do what I can to stay connected to the joyful awareness of my true nature, whether I'm in physical pain and suffering or sadness or grief, and allowing that flow of life to educate me. And can you tell me that Michael Singer podcast one more time? And I will do my very best to stay in that flow of life to educate me. Podcast itself is titled The Michael Singer Podcast. And the episode that I listened to most recently, which I will probably listen to many times, is from October 11th, S3E5. So I believe it's Season 3, Episode 5. And it's titled Experiencing Love and Joy instead of fear and desire. Good. Thank you. Experiencing love and joy rather than fear and desire. Okay. Got it. All right. Well, I'll mute you so you can listen to the rest of the show. Blessings. Thank you for your input. And I'll invite another comment or a question from those on the call or in the chat room, 563-999-3581. You call that number and press 1. You can weigh in on life, your experience of life, whether or not it makes sense to you to try and engage what the way of mastery calls the keys to the kingdom and whether or not anything about this whole conversation so far today is making sense. It's about allowing and surrendering even those things that we do not like or we do not find comfortable sadness and loss you know I've talked before about and recommended that people listen to the um, the podcasts from and the writings of the poetry of David White W-H-Y-T-E and in one of his offerings he talks about how half of all human existence is mediated by loss it's it's attenuated by loss everything that Way of Mastery says everything that begins in time ends in time And so everyone that you meet, every relationship you ever start in the physical, 
will eventually end in the physical. And so if we don't become comfortable with, if we don't befriend, if we don't uh, learn to accept loss, then we are rejecting half of everything about our human experience. So, you know, it, it doesn't really make any sense to be through the roof in tightness and tension and rejection of any kind of a loss or an upset because it's going to happen whether we are tight and tense about it or not. And as I was talking about earlier, I don't get the gifts, I don't get the blessings, I don't get the life learnings if I'm rejecting it, if I am tight and tense and in judgment about it. The only way I get the full benefit and the, the, the gifts and the, the blessings is if I stay in allowance, if I stay open and soft. This uh, this poet David White, I highly recommend him. Uh, he has some books that I've read, and he's got some wonderful. Uh, you might call them poems. You might call them spoken word pieces. And um, he also does a thing. I think he's. Um, it might be every other month that he um, he does things online where he um, invites people to get on while he's having a conversation about various topics and he'll do it for I think three months out of a month and it's a very you know I think a very reasonable fee. I've done it a couple times and enjoyed it immensely. And I, I particularly like it when he is reading his own poetry. He's got a rhythm in his voice and his accent and um, so I would offer that if you want a sample of that without having to pay anything you can go to the On Your Mind podcast with Krista Tippett and search for David White W-H-Y-T-E and or you can search for the conversational nature of reality. And um, you know, he's got such poignancy in his writing for me. One of the, the quotes I've taken from one of his poems 
uh, ambition. Ambition is a word that lacks any real ambition. Ambition is frozen desire. The current of a vocational life immobilized and over-concretized to set unforgiving goals. Ambition attracts us from the underlying elemental nature of the creative conversation while providing us the cover of a target that has become false through over-description, over-familiarity, or too much understanding. A little later on in that writing, he says, no matter the self-conceited importance of our labors, we are all compost for worlds we cannot yet imagine. We can't even begin to imagine the impact of our lives, the ripple effects of choosing joy or choosing anger and hostility. We do not know who is going to be blessed when we choose love or choose to teach only love when that option is available as the way of mastery said how do you teach only love by choosing to share only your loving thoughts and when we do that we have no idea how the ripple effects of that are going to play out in the world in the world around us in the world of our friends and family Sometimes, if we're lucky, we'll get a glimpse. Sometimes we're really, really blessed and someone who's felt the positive impact of our interaction with them will come and directly tell us that they are grateful. Or they'll find a way to talk about the the ways they believe their life has changed for the better by being in connection with us, being in interaction with us. One of David White's writings that I really enjoyed is titled Genius. As a word, he's, and Consolations is, is a book of his about uh, expanding on his thoughts of these various words and here's the word genius and he writes genius is something we already possess genius is best understood in its original and ancient sense that is describing the specific underlying quality of a given place as in the Latin word genius loci the spirit of a place. It describes a form of meeting, the meeting of air and land and trees, perhaps a hillside or a cliff edge, a flowing stream or a bridge across a river. It is the conversation of elements that makes a place incarnate and fully itself. It is the breeze on our skin the particular 
freshness of odors of the water or the mountain or the sky in a given actual geographical realm. You could go to many other places in the world with a cliff, a stream, a bridge, but it would not have the particular spirit or characteristic, the ambience nor the climate of this particular meeting place. By virtues of its latitudes and longitudes, by virtues of its prevailing winds, by virtues of the aroma and color of its vegetation, and the way a certain angle of the sun catches it in the cool early morning. This is a unique confluence existing nowhere else on earth. Human genius lies in the geography of the body and its conversation with the world. The human body constitutes a live geography as does the spirit and the identity that abides within it. To live one's genius is to dwell easily at the crossing point where all the elements of our life and our inheritance join and make meeting. We might think of ourselves as each like a created geography, a confluence of inherited flows. Each one of us has a unique signature inherited from our ancestors, our landscape, our language, and beneath it, a half-hidden geology of existence, memories, hurts, triumphs, and stories in our lineage that have not yet been fully told. Each one of us is also a changing seasonal weather front. And what blows through us is made up not only of the gifts and heartbreaks of our own growing, but also of our ancestors and the stories consciously and unconsciously passed to us about our lives and about their lives. To live out our genius is to live out the conversation between our particular inherited body and the body of the world from which we seem to have been made. Genius is not a fixed platform where we can arrive solely through accomplishment. It is the meeting place of our particular physical body, meeting all other bodies, corporal and elemental. A body breathed over by wind, shaken by interior tremors, and washed away and rearranged by periodic floods. It has its own hard-won language, and its attempts to order the unorderable, but it must also follow the seasons. It owns forms of happiness, its own particular and necessary griefs, and it intuits a particular future for itself, but this is made up in conversation with all other futures. Genius is both a specific gift and a possibility that has not yet occurred. It is a fixed internal commodity to be exploited and brought to the surface 
but it's also a conversation to be followed, to be deepened, understood, and celebrated. Genius is the meeting place between inheritance and horizon, between what has been told and what can be told and what has yet to be told, between our practical abilities and our relationship to the gravitational mystery that pulls us on. Our genius is to understand and stand beneath the set of stars present at our birth. And from that place, seek the hidden single star over the night horizon that we did not know and yet we are following. That's the end of our first hour. I'll remind us all that we come from love. We're made of love. We are love, and everything else is false. And I'll welcome Jeannie Rice. Thank you, Dr. Tim. And I didn't catch what what you were reading from. That is from the book Constellations. Consolation. There's no T in that word. Consolations by David White. W-H-Y-T-E, and that's a particular little essay on the word genius. All right. Okay, I got it. I pulled it up. All right. Thank, Thank you, you so much. You have, have a good a weekend. No, you too. Thanks. All right. So welcome, everybody, to the second hour of Mindshifters Radio. And today is Friday, October the 20th. 2023. Call-in number is 563-999-3581 and press 1 and that puts you in the queue to talk to us. We'd love to hear your comments and questions because that makes this your show. And I'm going to say welcome, Michael. Thank you, dear heart, and welcome, everybody. It's a delight to connect and... uh, I think we're going to have an interesting conversation today. We uh, we got a question. You want to share what the uh, what the question was, or was it was there actually a question attached, or, or was it just an invitation to look at this uh, perspective? Um, it was actually someone just sent it to me and said I would be interested in getting your and Michael's take on what this man says. And then he sent me the article that we're going to go over. Okay. And I've read it, and I think you've read it. So. Yes. Perfect. Well, what I decided to do with it was I think the whole thing is a, a really interesting perspective on the difference between living as a human being and living out of hostility and fear, living out of the world's mind. And not very often do we run across someone, I don't think, that uh, is going to be living out of love, at least in this culture. There are, I think, aboriginal cultures where there's certainly... Well, it's interesting. There are a couple of Aboriginal cultures, one of them in Australia, especially where they call themselves the real people. And they're actually, they're a subject of a book by a chiropractor several years back 
the name of the book was. It's a chiropractor that I knew in Kansas City, actually. She went to Australia. She did a walkabout. Anyway, she was introduced to these aboriginals, and this group of people call themselves the real people, and they're watching the insanity going on in the world, and they actually have chosen not to reproduce, that they're going to disappear from the planet because there's so much insanity. And... Uh, there's a an interesting quote I want to start out with. This was a a, a magazine article in a scientific journal. Let's see if I can find the journal reference here. Let me see if I can find the journal reference. Just give me one second here. I was in the middle. We just got this uh, this morning, so the wrong button and deleted the the article from my uh, my web page. So let me see if I go back to Jeannie's link. Here it is. Oh, pardon me. It wasn't a journal. It was the Los Angeles Times written by a, uh, a scientist uh, who, a uh, man from Stanford, Robert Sapolsky. And the the basic thesis of his article is there is no free will. That everybody's just pushed around by the forces of energy in the world, basically, is what he's saying. And it reminded me, and I actually went looking for this, and I could not find the source of the quote, but many years ago I had... Uh, gone to a conference, I don't even remember which one it was, and someone at the conference quoted an author that said, a million, million people live and die every century and never know they've even lived. And that quote to me would apply to what this Stanford scientist is uh, is saying. And he's saying, and I, so I'm just going to read through the article, make some comments. If you have a comment or a thought, push one, jump into the conversation. So, after decades of study, this scientist concludes we have no free will. After studying humans and the primates for 40 years, of course, there's one of the, uh, the first errors that he makes, other primates, like, uh, like we're, we're just primates. And, uh, of course, if you think that, then this is really going to make a lot of sense. But my question there would be, really? Or primates? Okay. Um, Stanford neurobiologist Robert Sapolsky has concluded that many factors beyond our control influence our choices and behaviors, leaving free will to be negligible in any context. And you remember that many times uh, you, we try to figure it out and remember the in our codependence workshop, the number one pseudo-solution of the non-being mind is if I could just figure this out. Excuse me, I'm making a note here. So that's why we offer that as the pseudo-solution, because when you look at all the factors, and this man is speaking about and honoring those factors because they're real, if you try to figure out the factor of what happened 20 generations ago to your spouse that led that spouse to, you know, if you could see all the dynamics down through the generations and what happened to you four generations ago and in utero, boom, 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 that attracted you. And, you know, he's, all these influence, he's never going to figure it out. 
However, you can rise above the influences and actually bring choice into the picture if you do your work, and that's the objective of this work. So he goes on to write, sort of verifying his thesis, before epilepsy was understood to be a neurological condition, people believed it was caused by the moon or by phlegm in the brain, which is not perhaps so far away from the truth when you start looking at the plaque and the energetic blocks that happen in the brain that create things like epilepsy. So that one may have actually been kind of, you know, a little closer to on track than most people think. They condemned seizures of evidence of witchcraft or demonic possession and killed or castrated sufferers to prevent them from passing tainted blood on to a new generation. Today, we know epilepsy is a disease. By and large, it's accepted that a person who causes a fatal traffic accident while in the grip of a seizure should not be charged with murder. Right on. That's good, says Stanford University neurobiologist Sapolsky. That's progress. And then he says, but there's a long way to go. In other words, he's envisioning a society that nobody's held accountable for their behavior in essence because we're all just uh, a product of these energetic forces. And my offering would be that, you know, we, we make a distinction in this work be, between decisions and behavior. If I say to you, don't think about the color of your car, what happens? What does the average person say? Oh, I'm thinking about the color of my car. Why are you thinking about the color of your car? Because my voice box set up a frequency, moved some air molecules, hit a drum in your ear, caused the, uh, the bones in your ear to move and create an electrical frequency to cause brain cells to fire. And the firing of those brain cells, because of resonance, is going to be something to do with the color of your car. I, I, I agree with his assessment of the forces involved that, you know, there's no... The person who says, I'm thinking about the color of my car, isn't thinking about the color of the car. All that's happened is content in the mind is resonated about the color of one's car. That process is not thinking. It's just pure resonance. And people who live on the level of resonance, you know, if, if most of them said what they thought, they'd be speechless because that's not a thinking process. That's just information moving within the mind. So he says, after 40 years of studying humans and other primates, he's reached the conclusion that virtually all behavior, human behavior, is as far beyond our conscious control as the convulsions of a seizure, the division of cells, or the beating of our hearts. This means accepting that a man who shoots in a crowd has no more control over his fate than the victims who happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time it's a means of treating drunk drivers who barrel into it means that drunk drivers who barrel into pedestrians just are just like other drivers who suffer a sudden heart attack or veer out of their lane <clears throat> so this man's advocating for at least at this stage in his conversation for no personal responsibility and if one operates when we've talked about carbon based memory that if you took your body into a lab and said, tell me what's in here, they'd tell you the base element was carbon, and that's what stores memory. And if one only operates on the level of carbon-based memory, it's true. 
resonance, bang, what am I thinking about? Well, I'm not thinking, but that's what's moving. And if what's moving is hostility, rage, fear, you know, damage somebody else, vengeance, then, you know, there we go. One can can succumb to those decisions in the mind. So properly um, defined, when I say don't think about the color of your car, what happens is your mind makes a decision which is just a product of resonance, and it shoots up whatever information. You know, if you don't have a car, the information might shoot up as, well, I don't have a car. That's just a decision in the mind. It is not a thinking process. So he says, the world is really screwed up and made much, much more unfair by the fact that we reward people and punish people for things they have no control over. We, got, we have no free will. Stop attributing stuff to us that isn't there. Now, I'm in agreement with them that punishment needs to disappear from the planet. It's time for us to be done with that. All that does is perpetuate decisions based in violence. And if you look at the culture, you look at how far we are away from functioning as human beings and that game of resonance until people forgive this idea of punishment self and others then they'll do that with their language with their thoughts with their words their actions he says we have no free will stop attributing stuff to us that's not there there's a uh and i don't know much about him but i i went and looked up the quote because i heard it many years ago uh, and the author again I don't know much about him is Henry Thomas Buckle and he says society prepares the crime the criminal commits it in other words societal forces the games of hostility and fear set up the stage you know keep a kid in poverty chances are he's going to find try to find a way out of it if he's not brought up as a human being connected to love then probably the way he or she is going to try to get out of it is through some form of hostility or fear so there are certainly powerful societal forces involved but our offering here is that there is a spiritual faculty we have to go beyond being animals we have to go beyond being a piece of meat which science is trying to convince a people a lot of people to stop there you're, you're no more than that but when we wake up to the truth of who we are and you know the beginning point a good beginning point for that if this is a new idea to you is just hold a newborn baby and tap into the essence of that newborn and what you're tapping into and almost universally you know this is a question Jeannie and I've asked of tens of tens of thousands of people all over the globe as we've traveled and done the forgiveness work describe the essence of the newborn and virtually everybody's answer is a word that represents some variation on the theme of love and our offering is that if we identify with the societal and family forces that form what we call our personality you know the Greeks acknowledge this persona personality means a mask it's a false self that we put on over who we are and one who lives out of that false self buckles statement and the thesis of this man's article society prepares the crime the criminal commits it is I I would pretty much agree with it 
But when we start waking up to who we are, what we find is there's another faculty, and that's a faculty called choice with which we can go into our own minds and remove those energetic forces implanted by the culture, especially the ones that have been emotionally charged. And of course, removing those things is called forgiveness and get to the point where we wake up to who we are. So this author, Sapolsky, received a MacArthur Genius Grant and uh, he says, you know, he's pretty aware that it's a way out there position. Most neuroscientists believe humans have at least some degree of free will, the article goes on to say. So do most philosophers and the vast majority of the general population. Free will is essentially how we see ourselves, fueling the satisfaction of achievement or the shame of failing to do the right thing. Saying that people have no free will is a great way to start an argument, he says. This is partly why Sapolsky, who describes himself as majorly adverse to interpersonal conflict, I guess he would call that a result of the societal forces for, for himself, put off writing his new book, and the title of the book is Determined, A Science of Life Without Free Will. He's 66. They say he's got a mild demeanor and a big beard. Jerry looks like Jerry Garcia. <clears throat> For more than three decades, he escaped the politics of academia to study baboons in rural Kenya for a few months every year. Interesting to think that, uh, you know, I mean, how many people have gone to study baboons in Kenya for three decades? Mm, probably pretty rare. Actually, I'm I'm thinking, Janie, do you remember the name of the uh, the scientist that worked with baboons? We we used to talk about this a fair bit, and this I think it might have been the same guy. I think his name was Sapolsky. But what he found was that baboon tribes, by and large, were pretty vicious. And in his writing, I, I remember he used to say that you know he didn't like them. I mean, he he worked with them for years, but he didn't like them because they were so vicious. And he observed in one particular case, there was a uh, kind of an interesting dynamic when you look at it. There was a, I think it was a restaurant or a food supplier. It's been years since I've thought about this one, but this food supplier was getting rid of tuberculosis-tainted meat. And a troop of baboons descended upon, found that meat, and ate it. <clears throat> and this troop of baboons was one that he was acquainted with. And he was very um, disturbed by the fact that they'd gotten into this TB-tainted meat, and many of them died from TB. But over time, what he observed was the ones who died were the ones who were the angry bullies of the troop that the gentler baboons in the troop weren't impacted by eating this tainted meat. To me, that's a whole statement in itself that verifies everything we've been talking about with hostility or fear is what kills us. If we live in that hostility or fear world and that hostility or fear mindset, that's literally a physiological mindset that very rapidly, when one engages in it, leads to death. And his work with this particular troop of baboons proved that out. But what he ended up sharing was in, in watching this troop where all the vicious baboons were, uh, were dead, the first time that he'd seen it in all the years he'd been studying baboons 
was that all of a sudden there was a troop of gentle, nurturing, caring baboons who took care of each other. And he observed that when one of the, you know, a baboon from another tribe, another troop, I guess he calls them troops, um, showed up and was in that bully vicious mode, the baboons in this troop would square them off, stop the behavior, and teach them, we don't do that here. And that baboon would be shifted over into a gentle, caring baboon like the rest of the troop. Just uh, an interesting dynamic. And uh, if I have my thoughts, probably Jeannie is already looking to see if she can find that, if it is Sapolsky. Um I did find an article where he worked with them, but I'm I'm searching the article to see if it's the one where he talk, what you talked about about the baboons. But he he did. There is a, a big write up on him working with baboons. So I'll keep looking through the article. Yeah, well, this one specifically in, involved uh, TB tainted meat. So I assume if you put his name in and TB tainted meat, you'd find that. I'm trying to remember whether that was an article we had or was that a video. It seems to me, oh, it was it, it came from a video on stress, I think. So think about it. Anyway, we'll find that. So the article goes on to say, a man, right, sitting in dry grass, faces a baboon near trees. And, uh, pardon me, that was, a, that was a, uh, a note beneath the picture. The article in the picture is in copy, so I'm... I don't have the pictures. This goes back to 1980s. So he goes on to say, I'm really, really not trying to sound like a combative jerk in the book, he said. I deal with human complexities by going and living in a tent. So, yeah, I'm not up for a lot of brawls about this. He's, he's uh, I guess, pretty, uh, pretty much a loner. Analyzing human behavior through the lens of any single discipline leaves room for the possibility that people choose their actions, he says. But after a long cross-discipline career, he feels it's intellectually dishonest to write anything other than what he sees as the unavoidable conclusion. Free will is a myth. And the sooner we accept that, the more just our society will be. Determined, the name of his book is just coming out or this article was written about his book that was written in uh, 2017. Uh, actually, it looks like it became a bestseller. So the subtitle of his book, um, Behave, the Bi- Biology of Humans at Our Best and Worst. It breaks down the neurochemical influences that contribute to human behaviors, analyzing the milliseconds to centuries preceding and pulling of a trigger or the suggestive touch of an arm. So he's saying all behavior is just neurobiology. If it's impossible for any single neuron or any single brain to act without influence from factors beyond its control, he argues, there can be no logical room for free will. My my take here, and, and I'm inviting conversation, if this stirs anything for you, push one and let's talk about it. But my take is that uh, 
what he's talking about here is inclinations, not free will. So, no, we don't have, and over time you can develop uh, control over your inclinations. And I think what he's saying, or what my, my take, my offering on the error I see him stuck in, is he thinks inclinations are behavior. And yet, do we have any control over inclinations? Nah. Except when an inclination comes forward, then we have the ability, if we're conscious and aware of forgiveness, we have the ability to change our inclinations. We have the ability to choose our inclinations. You'll notice in the worksheet, you'll, you'll see the, the language that says, asking Ruka to incline you toward healing, incline you toward doing your work, basically. Because most people aren't inclined toward that. And there's where free will comes in, is that we can change the inclinations. We can change what's going on within our structures. We know we make worse decisions when hungry, stressed, or scared. We know our physical makeup is influenced by genes inherited from distant ancestors and by our mother's health during her pregnancy. Abundant evidence indicates that people who grew up in homes marked by chaos and deprivation will perceive the world differently and make different choices than people raised in safe, stable, resource-rich environments. A lot of important things are beyond our control. Now, my offering is, the key thought here was, no, we don't perceive the world differently. Our perception is different. And there's a big difference between those two statements. Because if, if you remember, we have a lesson from A Course in Miracle, Miracles called What is the World? And the world is false perception. So most people think when they look at the pictures painted on the inside of their eyeballs that they're looking at the world. My offering is when you look at the world painted on the inside of your eyeballs, you're not looking at the world. You're looking at a picture generated by your mind painted on the inside of our eyeballs. And people call that perception of the world, but really our perception is nothing but a reflection of what's going on within. If one doesn't understand that, I can, you know, I can understand why he comes to these conclusions, that he, he thinks that his eye is actually seeing what's happening out there as opposed to his brain's best guess at what's happening out there, perception. And we have, when we do our work, the option of stepping into directly interacting with the actual world and we could call the result of awakening to that enlightened perception, perception that reflects accurate information about what's actually happening in the world, rather than substituting for what's happening in the world those things that the happenings in the world trigger in us and the perceptual constructs created by our minds.
that making sense for everybody? And it was uh, the same gentleman that did the study on the baboons. I thought it must have been. I haven't thought of that for, I don't know, I think the early days of the show we talked about it a few times, so it's been probably 10 yeah, years. Yeah, I found it in 2012 and 2013. We do have a hand up. Oh, great. Let's go for it. That's what I'm hoping for, some conversation and uh, interaction on this idea. Okay. I don't recognize this number, but it's area code 619. You're on the air. Who do we have? Dr. Rice, it's Pete Danucci calling. Oh, well, hey there, young man. Good to hear your voice. How are you? Good. I haven't seen you in a while. I read your book about five times, and... uh, our first intensive workshop. Recently, or you're talking about years ago? Years ago. I'm actually looking okay. for it right now. <laughs> but uh, I think it was 97 we did the workshop. Um, right. But I find your conversation uh, incredibly interesting. And I always offer up that what we see is the world we project. Um, so... Since I've met you, I just wanted to throw something out here and get your thoughts okay. on it. I wrote a book called The Just and Safe Culture oh, 10 years ago, and I teach it in high reliability industries, healthcare, aviation, law enforcement. And it's really negation when something has bad. And this is, happens that it's bad, but it's going to get back to the, the book uh, comments that we were just talking about, the other person's book. Um, It ends up with individual accountability and system accountability. When you look at the two, what did the person know? What procedures did they have? What environment were they in? Why did they make those choices? And the final question is, did the employee knowingly introduce unjustifiable risk into the system? It's either yes or no. And then it's either a reckless reckless behavior is yes, and no is unsafe behavior. they just accidentally made a bad choice because of whatever. Or they actually knowingly did it, they sabotage, et cetera. That's really rare. But uh, right. regard, regardless, you go into system accountability, and then we look at the system. Do we need to redesign? Do we have to change the training? Do we have to review the management structure? So we look at everything together. Right. So Makes sense. I guess I kind of disagree with that. We have no free will because at some level you do. In my opinion, that's what I'm throwing out Absolutely. there. Anyway, your thoughts, doctor. I'm I'm with you 100. percent And if you're looking, you know, actually my book's out of print. You can catch it on eBay or or there are used copies all the time on eBay and on Amazon, and or you can go to our website and you can download it free in any one of I don't know a dozen or so languages. But uh, I delightedly, you know. If you, want to drop me a note, I'd delightedly send you a copy of the book uh, and uh, do an exchange. I'd love to see your book and see what it has to say, but I'm with you, except I would change one word in the context of your conversation with what you're saying, is that people made a poor choice. When a poor, what we would call a poor choice happens, I don't think we're making choices at all. They're decisions. They're simply, just like when I say don't think about the color of your car, resonance drives it, the circumstance drives the mind. And if one is awake 
in being and actually choosing, they'll always know and be inclined to do what we would call the right thing, the highest level of behavior, if choice is actually in the picture. But most people, you know, as that opening quote that I uh, that I shared, 100 million million people live and die every century and never know they've lived. They've never activated choice, never awakened on that level where the spiritual being has choice. Does that make okay, sense for you? Does that up, fit with yeah, what you're um, I'm taking notes. You said choice is the word I used, and you would use what word? I'm sorry. Decision. So when I say don't think about the color of your car, I set up a frequency with my voice that resonates content in your mind that has to do with the color of your car. That's a pure resonance function. Okay. That makes sense. And so the, 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 the human mind, if, if we're living in carbon-based memory, everything stored in it is from the past, and it's a decision-making machine. Everything that comes along resonates content, bang, as, as Sapolsky's saying. It, it resonates content, and bang, there's an answer. There's a decision, but that's anything but choice. And this body-mind unit left to its own resources is nothing but a decision-making machine. Right. When we actually awaken as human beings, that's when we can choose the inclination. That's when we can change the content of the mind. That's when we actually become fully human and that begin to sense. live as actual human beings. And then the mind serves up a decision, and I have choice. At the moment where choice can be applied is I can look at that decision as a being and go, that decision's garbage. I'm not doing that. And I can remove the root influences of it and put in a new frequency, a new energy, an actual choice. That would be, that's how I've come to understand it and would distinguish the two. That makes sense. That takes it a little bit deeper. Um, but I resonate with it. And so in, in, a, in, a, in the situations that you're talking about with high risk and such, to me, that the place to plug in would be the training to plug in awareness of who one is and as a human being, as love, with actual choices, and then the tool of being able to remove the undue influences. That, to me, would be the key part of the training, would be to remove or forgive the undue influences from you know, generational patterns and cultural patterns and family patterns and old, you know, functioning out of old hurts and old wounds. And when we have the tool to clean that up, our choices become better and better and better because there's less and less influence from those wounds of the past and of the generations and of the culture or the family system. I agree. Yeah, it's... Uh, I'll tell you the easier audience would be the nurses versus uh, fighter pilots. Yes, yes, I, I can hear that loud and clear. <laughs> but uh, anyway, thank you so much. So I'm just going to keep listening here. I'll mute it out. Delighted. Thanks for your input. I appreciate it. Good to talk to you, Peter. Good to hear your voice. Good to, good to talk to you. Thank you, Doctor. Bye. All right. Blessings. I'll All be right. I'm going to stay on. Here. All right. Cool. Okay. And we do have another hand up. Great. And Let's go for it. This is Dan, area code 757. You're on the air. Hey, guys. Hey there. Welcome. Thanks. Yeah. How are you, sir? Good to be here. 
I Good to hear well. you. I'm doing well. Good to hear y'all as well. And, uh, you know, I just, I have a lot of thoughts, excitement on this topic, but then I realized that it's, uh, I don't know exactly how to put it in words, but I think it's a, you know, it seems to me like the, um, the freedom, the free will is the sort of like core essence. I would link it to love, you know, our being. And that's kind of like what's left when we cancel out the stuff that seems to be pushing us around automatically. You know what I mean? Right. Right. So it's just, yeah, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> it's like, if if we go back to Yeshua 2,000 years ago, where he, he introduces, or in the ancient scriptures where they introduce the thought, he said, take care of the heart, for out of it are the issues in life. My, yeah. We could reword that in the context of this conversation, say, would be look into, learn how to open your own unconscious mind so that the inclinations and the influences there that take you into issues in your life that create dramas and traumas in your life, if you take care of what's going on inside of you, then you can eradicate the situations of drama and trauma and live a totally, completely different life. And again, that would mean that I have to call forward and strengthen the ability of choice. You know, there are five different spiritual faculties, and each of those faculties has a cheap copy in the carbon-based memory system, in the body-mind unit. And so the cheap copy of choice is decision. Oh, and most people call it, when they make a decision, they call it, well, that's the choice I made. Well, no, it isn't. It was just... What we identify, you know, in our Laws of Living course, we identify that as the automatic decision system. Resonance kicks it in, and and most people call that choice, and and therefore never ever achieve actually living from choice. Well, it's sort of like the computer metaphor. There was um, something in the book that, anyway, the the to me, it's kind of like at a certain point we committed to take various shortcuts. You know what I mean? This this equals this, or this resonates that, or this means this, or the such and such, it reminds me of this. And those are all shortcuts, and we go on autopilot and forget that we even made the choice in the first place. Exactly. And so it's getting, it's getting back to owning those uh those choices that we did make initially, but I can make a choice that um, uh, anyone who asks me a question is hostile. I can make that shortcut and with distorted data or whatever the case is, and then I'll be triggered every time somebody asks me about anything. And I'll forget that right. I made that choice initially, and the and the healing is to get back to the freedom of I did I did buy into this I did make this choice at one po- at one point to this, you know. I've been in twelve uh, step recovery for a long time, and I sort of at, at times it felt to me like the whole process is coming to terms and owning up to the fact that I do have freedom of choice, and not making excuses for being pushed around by this or that. Yeah, and my my take would be that the initial errant perception 
is probably a reflection of generational patterns. So, again, in the ancient scriptures, there's so much wisdom there. One of the things they talk about is, you know, look to the lives of the fathers, for ours are but a shadow of theirs upon the earth. Of course, it's not just fathers, but fathers and mothers, because the decisions of our generations tend to run us. You look at that whole story about the Jews being lost in the desert for 40 years. Were they really lost in a hot, sandy place, a 35-square-mile area for 40 years? Or were they talking about being lost in the unconscious mind, in in the decision-making process of the cultural and generational influences? And then the alternative to that when one and, and and if you look at the way one gets out of the desert in that story in that metaphor, what does it say? It says the old generation has to die off. Not everybody in old mm. physical bodies, but the the root of the word generation is cause. The causes in the mind have to be removed, and then one gets to go to the promised land where there's choice, where you get to choose what happens in your world, where you get to be a conscious creator. To me, that's the whole, that's what they're addressing in that whole, from there, that whole scriptural journey. And the, one of the key things that one has to do in order to be able to go inside of oneself and start to change those inclinations is to get out of their, their devout religious belief that somebody else is to blame for what's going on inside of them. That, that right. you know, one world universal religion to blame whenever somebody walks away from a conversation or from a conflict and their conversation in their head or to everybody else's about how they did it to them, they're very religious, devout people committed to blame. And when right. one walks away from a conflicting situation or a disturbed situation and is having a conversation about themselves, they're moving toward the promised land, they're moving toward consciously being able to interact in the world and to interact with their own minds. So that's the, to me, that's the whole scriptural journey they're offering and the wisdom that's there if we've got the brains, the eyes to see and the ears to hear is monumental. So part of my, my belief about healing is that um, if I really want to be free, I have to trace back the content in my mind to all of the different times where I went on autopilot or I made exactly. to, to throw this switch and say, I'm not dealing with this. It's, uh, it's somebody else's fault and it's going to be an automatic knee jerk thing. I, I really right. believe that we make choices to go on, on autopilot and, and I've got to trace back where that comes from in order to own the choice again. Right. And then to be, and, and then when I'm tracing it back, what what's really happening is I didn't make a choice to do that. That was just the an, an an emotionally impacted energetic dynamic of the generations that took away my choice and or that I surrendered my choice to and actually just played out that decision. And most people literally substitute the constructs of their mind perception for the actuality of what's happening in the world at any given moment and so tend to live out the family patterns when one chooses to give that up and faces the decisions that they've made, cleans them out, then all of a sudden they make room for. You know, one of the things that the forgiveness process talks about in The Course of Miracles is, you know, to leave a clean and open space within the mind. And at that point, 
we get to live in contact with the actual world as it's created rather than substituting this reality in my mind. So reality versus actuality. Reality, you know, six people were at an accident and they all ended up in court and you listen to their testimony and it's hard to tell any two of them were at the same accident. Each person substituted the constructs of their mind for the actual event of the accident and therefore six different, totally different pieces of testimony. And most people are doing that 99 to 100% of the time in their lives. They never taste or touch actuality. And so when we start applying forgiveness and and when you talk about it, I'm, I'm with you 100%, you have to go back and clean those things up. And one method of doing that is to go lay on the psychiatrist coach for psychiatrist coach, pardon me, for 25 years, and look for that deep, dark, dirty, nasty thing that happened. Or you can use a tool of forgiveness, and when you apply forgiveness and collapse the construct of the mind, the the decision of the moment you get to drop, there's the, the benefit of the worksheets, and I appreciate it. You dropped me the note about you're up to 800 worksheets, and that was, what, about two well, weeks ago now, so you're probably at 1,000, right? <laughs> it's actually 989, and I, I'm going to sit, I'm off work today, so I believe I'll do, you know, the 11 to get to 1,000 today, because I have some stuff coming up anyway. Um, awesome. So, yeah. So when yeah. one cancels, when we get to that core of forgiveness, to me this is the brilliance of what Yeshua brought to the world and, and the Greeks threw away. When you get to that core of collapsing the construct, the decision of the mind from this moment, and when that collapses, it drops in the mind right into the root of that construct. Now you've got access to the origins of that pattern which might be 20 generations ago and and you don't have to figure it out all you need to do is bring it to the presence of love and dissolution begins to occur dissolution dissolution of the past and that's what really empowers choice so how and i'm i'm just excited about how i, I just feel so on board with this and i haven't had um you know words for it in the past i guess i'm just getting more and more clarity through this process because right. I've already had these kinds of thoughts and this has refined it more. So it's just exciting. Um, Sweet. Do you, is it important to, and I mean, does it matter to determine if the content that I'm looking at in any particular instance is from my personal life versus generational? Does that matter uh, to figure out or determine? Well, remember the number one pseudo-solution. This is from our codependence work. The number one pseudo-solution of the non-being mind is if I could just figure this out. That's and, what I would say. You know, if you take, if you take Sapolsky's premise, he's saying, as we've said for decades, you can't figure it out. The mind will go, right. you know, I mean, I, I've, I've used the example before of, you know, I could have a workshop with 100 people in it and ask everybody their age, minus five years for each person, add their ages all up, and I'd have the number of years that everybody in that audience has been trying to figure it out, and nobody can figure it out because there are so many influences. I mean, what happened 10 generations ago to, you know, great, 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 great grandma or, or 
grandpa or, or you know, and now we've got this other person involved. What, what are the generational influences of them? What, what did they see on TV last night? You know, all those influences. There's nobody that can figure it out. And, and the non-being mind, that's the number one thing it wants to do is figure it out. My offering is, or my take, and what I've observed over the last, you know, especially the 40-some years I've been working with the first century Aramaic forgiveness process, is that if there's something important for you to know or understand about, did this happen when I was two, or did it happen to my great-great-grandfather, is you'll get literally the whole story. You'll be shown perceptually, cognitively what it is. Otherwise, there's no need to have cognitive awareness of whatever's moving. The, the key is to process the energy. You don't have to form the trauma-based energy into a story or a picture to heal it. All you need to do is bring it forward in the presence of love. There's where the still point breathing comes in because when you hit that still point, you've opened the resistance and stepped into a superconductor state where whatever starts to move will process in an instant and it doesn't have to be cognitive. If there's my my experience has been if there's a need or a reason for it to become cognitive then it will perhaps become cognitive right there in the middle of the worksheet or right there in the middle of the the still point breathing session or three days later you're walking down the street and all of a sudden it's like bingo oh that was it and you're showing what it is yeah so cognition is not a requirement of the process no Okay, and I think in some cases it might be like uh, an impediment because yeah. um, trying to figure it out. Right, right, and so like trying to figure Sapolsky, it out is one of the biggest impediments to healing. <laughs> I mean, Sapolsky's view, and and I re- I I like I've actually watched some videos of his um, previously about just totally different topics, and anyway, I like I like the guy. I I don't. The thing is that it's beyond what's knowable in my opinion you know in order to say that all everything is determined it's kind of like okay well like you were saying sure i mean i would have to know the the position and the momentum of every particle in the universe in order to really see right. if things are being paused and determined beyond what we can really uh figure out and it's but it's not beyond what we can process through forgiveness. That, to me, is the key, whatever it is. And that's why there is no need to figure it out. But when right. one recognizes that the perceptual construct of the mind that's running a person at this moment is driven by a goal, and then in Aramaic the word forgive, shabag, means to cancel, to cancel that goal collapses the end result of all of those influences. And then in willingness, you know, if you if you go back to the definition in Aramaic of what the Greeks called the Holy Spirit, and there's nothing there about a disembodied spirit being, but it's ruka de kutsha, it defined in Aramaic is it's a feminine elemental force in us that undoes the effects of our errors and teaches us the truth. For that force to undo the effects of our errors, i.e., the thousand million trillion influences every particle in the universe 
to, to do that is an impossibility for our pea brains, but for that power that resides within us, if I know it's there and I'm willing to turn this issue over to it, then that state of non-resistance, that superconductor state, allows those underlying energies literally to be processed in a second and I'm freed of that influence. So you go beyond, you've got to be willing to go beyond the mind. And yes. Oh, well, you've heard me say it before. In order to heal, you've got to be out of your mind. Right, right. The brain, so that's the problem. The brain is the instrument, of, or the, the brain is the instrument of the mind, and all it can do, unless there's an opening for it, is process or run stories and programs and energetic patterns from the past. That's all that happens in carbon-based memory. And right. That carbon-based memory mind, you know, if if you look at, you know, a, a molecule of carbon is six electrons, six protons, six neutrons, six, six, six. You go back to right. the ancient teachings and, oh, there's this mind of love in us, which they called the mind of Christ, not about a man named Yeshua, but this mind of love in us that it is our birthright to use. And when we choose to bring that mind into play, we're out of our mind, what the world calls our minds, we're out of our minds. We're into another level of existence where the human being, uh, which of course goes beyond baboons or anything else that's going on in the world, there's a whole new factor that's being introduced to the world that's beyond. So we've got the mind of love, the mind of choice in us, and then we've got carbon-based memory. Adamos, the red clay, stored past experiences, influences play out and run the show. Right, right. The computer. Yeah, yeah, pure computer function. And, and nothing but a pure reflection of the past with all its right. myriad of influences. In order to really do something like new or genuinely, uh, you know, freely chosen, that you got to be out of your mind. Right, right, right. Okay, that's you exactly it. You got to make it. a room in your yeah. mind to, for that to happen. Yeah, uh, what's his name? In Florida, the uh, the museum is there of uh, Alexander Graham Bell, and over in the corner, there's a a uh, an old wire type bed frame and what the story is told the story that's told is that bell when he ran out of things ideas for his inventions he had an iron ball and a, a metal tub and he'd go over and lay on that bed he'd hold the iron ball out over the edge of the bed and he'd go to sleep and when he would drop into a, such a relaxed state that the iron ball dropped into the tub and made a loud noise and woke him up, what he said was he reached into the air and that's where he got his ideas. Okay. And that's, that was his, my, my description of that would be, that was his mechanism for getting out of his mind. I assume he didn't have forgiveness. But if I right. use forgiveness on a regular basis, you know, people who have what they call a near-death experience, which is really a near-life experience, when clinical death occurs, the ego mind, the mind of the past, those influences that Sapolsky's talking about, all collapse, dead, gone. And now we get a chance to wake up to 
who we are. These people who come back with their near-life experience stories come back with all kinds of things that are beyond what our human mind is conceived of. Why? Because that's where we live as human beings. And as far as we can tell, there's no other creature on the planet that has choice. We do, and it comes from that level and that state of being. Yeah. Well, this is awesome stuff. It is. I, I'm. That's great, and I appreciate this uh, this uh, article being coming available to us. And thank you, Tim, if you listen to this for uh, for sharing with us, because it's just it's, it really opens the conversation on a whole other level. But to 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 end the habit of substituting carbon-based memories, constructs, projections, to end that habit and live in a state of being takes a significant amount of work to get out of the desert, to get out of yeah. the unconscious. That's, that word desert in the, in the ancient scriptures is just a, a code word for the unconscious. Be a, life, a, life a challenge. It's a lifetime of work, exactly. It's like there are a thousand voices and a thousand unresolved traumas always clawing and climbing to get to the surface to get our attention. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when we open the space, you know, you go to the Course of Miracles and the, the, it describes forgiveness. There are only two places on the planet I've ever found an exact and specific definition of forgiveness. One is in the ancient Aramaic New Testament, teachings of Yeshua on how forgiveness works. The other is in A Course in Miracles, and here's what the Course says, which kind of sums up our conversation. It says, let go all the things you think you want, that is your goals, your trifling treasures, put away, it says, and leave a clean and open space within your mind for choice to come. The word the Course uses there is Christ, but leave a clean and open space within your mind for the true state of being that is you coming into this world. You know, you go back to the creation story. And again, they, they talk about Moses, you know, while Moses was a little senile, he didn't really know what he was talking about because he, he tells the creation story and then he tells it again. Well, if you read it, it talks about the creation of man. And it says, in the image and likeness of love, he created them, male and female, he created them. And, and humans are created. There's no mention of a body. There's no mention of Adam. Adamos, the red clay. And then right. he starts all over again. He tells the story again, and he says, there was no man. Here's, here's Moses. There is no man to till the soil. What are they saying? There's no carbon-based memory. There's no physiological component yet. There's the human being. Evolution gives us a form. Adam, Adamos, the red clay. And then what it says after he introduces Adam, it says, and and the creator breathed nafsha, which is the word that describes the created human being, into Adamos, and nafsha became an incarnated or a living spiritual being. And it's a spiritual hmm. faculty, this choice thing, and if you avoid the spiritual faculty, then all you've got is carbon-based memory and the influences that uh, this Polsky is so skillfully talking about. Yeah. But that moment of the creation story, he's, he's very accurately describing the moment at which choice arrived, at which human being arrived, at which what was called the mind of Christ, which is the essence of every one of us, arrives into the world. And the, uh, the journey of, uh, of 
taking over with choice is a whole life, as you say, a lifetime of work. I'm with you, too. It's exciting, though. It is. It's the the original incredible joinee, I like to say. <laughs> there is a joy to it that is just amazing. Well, we're down to the last few seconds. The uh, show's going to cut us off, so thank you for that input. Thank you as well, Peter. Uh, delighted, and we'll pick this conversation up again on Monday. Everybody, have the best year yet of your eternal life. Have an awesome weekend. See you Monday. Blessings. Bye-bye. <laughs>